Boy, Ben's laid it on pretty thick, isn't he? He's, he's being pretty nice to me. Um, since he admitted that he butchered last night, let me just go ahead. I've never played the guitar before. All right, never in my life ever played the guitar. Um, so tomorrow you'll get it. You'll get, you'll get all those details. Um, what he didn't tell you about disc golf is that on the last hole, I was, I was two strokes ahead of him. Um, and it came down to the last, he had made a shot. And I had two strokes to, to lose. And I was probably 10 feet away or so. So just for fun, I just threw it on the ground in front of the, in front of the hole. Then just picked it up and did it. So I could say I could beat him, only beat him by one stroke. We had a good time. Um, I loved hanging out with Ben and Jay Hall today. It was, it was a lot of fun. I don't know about you, but unless it's your first time flying, most of us don't pay a whole lot of attention to what the flight attendant says at the beginning of, of the flight. And I, again, I think if it's your first time, maybe you pay pretty close attention. But after that first time or two, you really just kind of tune it out. At least I do, and that's probably not the greatest idea. If I know we're going to be flying over some water, I might... Um, try to find where that life jacket is. And I don't know why we do that, but we just tend to not pay attention. Maybe it's because we know how slim of a chance it is that that plane is going down. It's a pretty safe way to travel. And I think the other side of it is, I think deep down inside we know, if that plane goes down, it's probably not going to matter how much of that information I actually picked up. I've been on a flight or two where um, they have those fancy little videos, and they've tried to make a cute and funny video just to get you to pay attention. And you pay attention for a minute, and then you still tune that out. So it's funny how we, we tend to tune out the flight attendant until something happens that scares us a little bit, right? You ever been on a flight where things got a little bumpy? Or maybe there was some real sudden turbulence, and it wakes everybody up, and when the voice comes over the loudspeaker, whether it's the flight attendant or the pilot to explain what was happening, you pay real close attention, don't you? Because all of a sudden, it has your attention, and it's, it's awakened you just a bit. When we were living in, in Peru, we had gone on a vacation. Our daughter was about a year old at the time. We'd gone to the coast, and we'd flown from where we lived way up in the mountains to the coast for a week of vacation. And on our way back home, we were about to, to take off. And the, the in-country flights in Peru are not puddle jumpers. These are nice, modern um, airplanes, nicer than a lot of the place, ways you kind of fly around the United States. Really nice flights. And we were about to take off, and, and I remember going down the runway. You know that point at which you're really moving down the runway, and you can feel that, that front tire lift off? We were at that point where that should have happened, and the pilot slammed on the brakes. Like the kind of slam on the brakes that like throws everybody forward, and immediately it got everybody's attention. It was pretty scary, and he said a, apparently a light came on at the last minute. And so he decided rather than taking off, we better get that fixed. So we sat around there for a couple hours. But I remember in that moment, I was really, really tuned in to what the pilot was saying because he had my attention. I think there are times when we open up scripture that we kind of treat it like that flight attendant at the beginning of a flight, especially if we've heard it several times. If you've heard a passage or a verse over and over and over again, there's this tendency to kind of back off and say, well, yeah, I already know that and tune it out. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 2. This is probably beyond John 3.16, one of the chapters of the Bible that we know the best. And there are a couple of verses in Acts chapter 2, one in particular that may be the verse that many of us know better than any other verse in the Bible. And we can quote it, and you've heard it many, many times. But I think our tendency in a chapter like Acts chapter 2, especially in Acts chapter 2 verse 38, is to tune into the parts that 
that win arguments and to tune into the parts that maybe we think matter more and maybe tune out some of the parts that we don't really like to think about or just we don't think we need to think about. And what I want to do tonight is explore again Acts chapter 2 and make sure that there's not something that we're missing. I want to make sure that there's not a blind spot that, that we've kind of ignored and not paid any attention to. Because I don't know about you, if there's something that God's word wants to communicate to me, if there's something God wants to communicate to me through his word, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. And I don't want to miss that in Acts chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, or maybe watching online, maybe you've never explored Acts chapter 2 before, and I hope tonight that you'll pay really careful attention to what we're going to talk about, not to what I'm going to say, but I want you to pay really close attention to the Word of God, and turn your Bible there, and listen to what Acts chapter 2 says. Because tonight, I'm not interested in defending any traditions I'm not interested in defending the Church of Christ, or I'm not interested in defending the Buford Church of Christ. I'm interested in seeing what the Word of God says. And I hope if you're listening online and you've never, if you've never explored this passage, that you'll just open your Bible and, and let the Word of God speak to you. And carefully read on your own after this lesson. Read it again and see what God's Word, in its simplicity, says in Acts chapter 2. Now, some folks might ask, well, why Acts chapter 2? Why, why, why are we going there again? Again, if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard a lot from this chapter over time. Here's why I think this is so important and so important for us to hear again and again. In Acts chapter 2, the gospel is preached in its entirety, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, for the very first time, at least recorded in Scripture for us. This is the first time that post death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that this message is preached to an audience. And then, not only do we get to hear this message preached, but we get to see how people respond to the message and how they're told to respond. So this is kind of like the launch party of Christianity. If we want to know what happens at the very beginning, then we should pay close attention to, to Acts chapter 2, even if you've heard it a time or two. And so that's where we want to spend our time exploring what this beginning looked like and what this message looked like. Now, if you're a guest with us, or you're watching online, admittedly, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of questions about what we're going to talk about and a lot of questions about how one receives God's salvation. Last night, we talked about how God loves us, how deeply loved we are by the Father. But then that leads us to the question, how do we respond to that incredible love of God through Christ Jesus? And there's a lot of different ways that people think about that. Again, what I want to do tonight is just simply look at the Word of God. Now, coming back to those of you who've been around for a while and you've read this chapter before, if somebody were to ask you what the plan of salvation is, I think a lot of us would say something like this. We would say, well, the plan of salvation is hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And I'm guessing most of you have seen this or heard this list, and I'm thankful that I was taught this list growing up. It's easy to remember and it's simple. My concern, though, is that it doesn't tell the whole story. And while, again, while it is simple and easy to remember, and I'm thankful, and I'm not criticizing the, the fact that I learned this, my concern is that if somebody asks me or asks you what the plan of salvation is, and my first response is to go to a list of things that I do, then I've missed the most important part. And Acts chapter 2, I think, helps to address that. So I want us to talk not about the plan of salvation in a list that we learned at some point, but I want us to talk about God's plan of salvation. 
And where it starts is very important. And it doesn't start with what I do. It starts with what God does. It starts with God's part. The first part of the plan of salvation is not hear the word. The most important part of the plan of salvation is not be baptized. The first part and the most important part of the plan of salvation is what God has done through Jesus Christ. And here's what's crazy. It doesn't start in the Gospels, and it doesn't start in Acts chapter 2. God's plan to save people, to save, to reconcile the relationship that's been broken, goes all the way back to the beginning. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve have rebelled against their creator? And God's doling out these punishments, and he's doling out the punishment to Satan. And here's what Genesis 3 verse 15 says. It says, I will put enmity, or that's kind of a fancy word for hostility. I'll put hostility between you and the woman, and listen to this, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you're just kind of flying through Genesis chapter 3, you probably don't really catch this. But all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, this is the very first pronouncement of the gospel. This is God saying, listen here, Satan. Eventually, there's going to come a man who is from the seed of this woman, and he's going to crush your head. Now, you're going you're to hurt him, but he's going to deliver the death blow to you. God's plan for salvation is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And even in Genesis chapter 12, God is tell, has told Abram, I want you to go from your country and represent me where I send you. I'm going to tell you where, where to go when you get there. And in verse 3, here's the promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12. What's that prediction about? How is it that through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed except through the seed of Abraham, which would be Jesus Christ. And so my point is I want you to see that God's plan to save us goes all the way back to the very beginning. It culminates in the Gospels, and in Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the story again. And this is the story that we told last night, right? That makes it so obvious that we are loved by God. Look at a couple of verses with me. Let's pick up in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You can skip to verse, verse 34, or rather verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen, here's God's part. God sent his son to die for our sins, and then he rose again. And you can't graduate from the basics of that message. We can't get to a point where we think, okay, the basic gospel message, Jesus died and rose again. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. I've, I've moved on be, beyond that to spiritual maturity. No, if you think that you've moved beyond the gospel, then you've moved not to spiritual maturity, you've moved to self-righteousness. And you've moved to a works-based salvation because somehow you think that, that you can do it and by your faithfulness somehow you're saved. Listen, I think 
a lot of church people, myself included, need the reminder that I am not saved because of how good I am or how many times I've come to church or how many years I've come to church or how many times I've read my Bible. I am saved and will, I can, I am saved only by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. I can never, ever earn it or deserve it. And I can't move beyond this message. Here's why, if you think you can somehow move beyond the basics of the gospel message, God's part, then you know what you miss out on? You miss out on what humility looks like. You miss out on what service looks like. You miss out, as we talked about last night, what, what humility in marriage looks like. You miss out on what it looks like to, to love other people. We can't move beyond the basics of the gospel. We can't move beyond God's part. And as soon as we get bored with the basic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then perhaps it's time to reevaluate and make sure our hearts are in the right place. Now, when we talk about God's part, I think it's fascinating that immediately after this message, the crowd responds with a question. Look at this, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Before we move past God's part into our response to this, I think it's important to note that this message must take root in our hearts and maybe not take root in our hearts. I mean, that's not the best way to say it. It must touch our hearts and melt our hearts to the point that we recognize that we are lost without Jesus. That we are lost in our sin. In fact, I don't think we can get to the to our part of this story until we understand that we are lost in sin and there's nothing we can do about it. You ever, you ever broken a, a phone before? You ever smashed a screen? This is a fair, relatively new phone. I got it back in February. I was still on an iPhone 6, so got a new one. About a week later, I, I don't know if you've ever done this before, it somehow fell out of my pocket down into the, in between the, the cushions of the couch or the recliner. And I had the recliner out, and so I kind of started to close it, and I heard a noise, and I thought, oh, no. And so I called my son, and he got down on the floor, and all I remember him saying is, oh, no. And he, he pulled it out of there, and it, it was shattered. And we, at that point, we couldn't tell. Fortunately, it was just the screen protector. That screen protector that AT&T says, hey, if, if you break it, we'll replace it for free. It really works. It's amazing. And I was so thankful. But if you've ever shattered a screen like this, when it's broke, you can't fix it. Now, I know you can take it to a shop, and there are certain people who can do the things, but there are some things when they are broken, they can't be fixed. Listen, we are broken by sin, and we can't fix us. You know that every culture throughout the history of human beings has recognized that to some degree? That's where all of the world religions come from. The world religions come from the reality that people know, okay, there must be something out there. There's a creator out there. And this relationship that, that, I've ha that we're supposed to have with him is broken. And so where do the world religions come from? It's people trying to fix that brokenness. And so they set up a, a system of sacrifices or works and have some sort of a book that says, here's how you connect with the creator. Here's what differentiates Christianity from all of the other world religions. God is the one who initiates the restoration of the relationship. All of the world religions say, okay, what do we got to do? Let's come up with a system to fix this. Christianity is fundamentally different because God says, I'm going to fix it. Turn your Bibles, flip it over to Romans chapter 3 for a second. Because I think 
Paul illustrates this beautifully. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. And you get to verse 23, which you've heard many times, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 22 is interesting. He says, for there's no distinction. doesn't matter who you are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So all of us are broken. We deserve the wrath of God. You skip over to chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death for our sin. If you don't understand that, then the rest of the gospel, our response to this message, isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. So God does something. Verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, the word propitiation is not one that I, that I throw out there very often, is it? It's not, I don't use the word propitiation in my everyday language. But the best way that I've heard that phrase, or that word explained is, is like this. In the ancient world, the pagans feared the gods. The ancient Greeks and Romans feared the gods. The gods were vindictive and angry, and so whatever part of life you were dealing with, you had to satisfy the god of that area of life. So, for example, if you were about to take a trip on the sea, if you're going to get on the Mediterranean Sea like Paul did lots of times and make a, make a trip somewhere across the Mediterranean, you were concerned about satisfying the wrath of the God of the sea. A couple of years ago, I stood on the banks of the Mediterranean at Caesarea, just northeast, northwest of Jerusalem, and I have never seen waves that big before. I mean, the kind of waves that crashed into the ruins at Caesarea and splashed 50 feet in the air, 50 mile an hour winds nonstop. And if you ever wonder, why did, the, why did the pagans think their gods were angry at them? Just look at the Mediterranean Sea in a moment like that. It's no wonder they thought, wow, the god of the sea is angry, because that sea sure looked angry. And so before they would venture out on that sea, they would go to some sort of temple and pay a fee and go through some sort of system and they would offer a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of that God before they went out on the sea. And that was called in the pagan world a propitiation sacrifice. And Paul borrows that word and says in Christianity, it's not, it's not like the pagans, we don't offer the sacrifice. What is amazing about the Christian faith is that we don't offer the sacrifice. God, listen to this, God offers himself as a sacrifice to himself to satisfy his wrath. Let me say it again. God offers a sacrifice of himself, of his son, to himself to satisfy his wrath. If you're like, like that's blowing your mind, I get it. You got to think about that for a little while, but it's what makes Christianity fundamentally different. We don't offer the sacrifice. God offers it. And that's the only way we can get to a point where we can have a conversation like this. Well, what's our part? If it's true that God has done his part through Jesus Christ, how do we respond to receive whatever it is that he's offering us? This gift. Now, there are some folks that as soon as you put that on the screen, they're going to say, oh, wait, if you're talking about your part, you are eliminating grace. It's not a gift anymore. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And that's absolutely right. But is it true to say that if we have a part in this process, that it's no longer a gift? I don't think so. Here's why. 
There's no perfect illustration for this, all right? Let's be real clear up front. There's no way to fully explain the beauty of God's gracious gift, but let's try it like this. Let's say that after services, one of you comes up to me and says, Matt, appreciate you, you being here, um, and I'm thankful for you. In fact, Ben said all that nice stuff. He convinced me that you're, you're okay, and Ben's exaggerating big time on all that stuff, all right? But, but you were convinced. You come up to me and say, you know, I've just kind of been storing away this shoebox full of cash, $10,000. I want, I want you to have it. I want you to come get it. And I would say, all right, let's do it, right? Let's go get it. That's really nice of you. That's an incredible gift. Now, if you say, okay, and I say, that's incredible, what do I need to do? And you say, nothing. You don't have to do anything. But will you come over to my house after worship? In fact, I've put it up, the shoebox is kind of up in the closet and I can't reach uh, will you come over and climb up on a stepladder and get that, get that shoebox? And so I come to your house, and I climb up there, and I get that shoebox. Am I going to then say, well, look what I've done. I've sure earned this $10,000 now, haven't I? Of course not. Isn't it still a gift? Absolutely. Now, I know that that is not a perfect illustration, because God doesn't make us climb up in a closet and get to, I know all of that, all right? But what I'm trying to prove here is that just because God asks us to respond in obedient faith doesn't mean that we've earned anything. And I think that's an important reminder as we continue this conversation tonight. Baptism, when we talk about that in a second, does not earn anything for us. It's our response in faith to God's gracious gift. It's our obedient response. So, to say that you somehow earned this gift, and it's no longer a gift just because we do something. I think that's a, it's a false dichotomy. That's just not true. So how do we respond? Well, here's what Peter says. This is Acts chapter 2. Where you've been in Romans. I'm flipping back to Acts 2. And if you're following along at home, or later perhaps watching online, I want you to hear what the Bible says here. Not what, not what I'm saying. I'm going to read it for you. So they say, brothers, what shall we do? In verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent, and the folks here in the auditorium want me to keep walking, but I'm going to stop right there. Because our part in this process of salvation does not start with baptism. This is maybe the part that we're tempted to skip to get people to the baptistry. And that's that we are all called in response to God's gracious gift to repent. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, um, I got in trouble fairly regularly for picking on my brother or whatever. And my mom would always say, actions speak louder than words. Because you know what we would do? We would say, we're sorry, we're sorry, because we wanted to get away, get out of the punishment or get her to stop lecturing. We're sorry, we're sorry. Actions speak louder than words. You see, repentance is not just saying we're sorry. It's not just recognition of sin and saying, boy, I'm sorry, and then moving on. No, to repent means, literally means a change of mind. And when that change of mind occurs, what then follows? A change of action. So it is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And God calls us to make that change when we make the decision to follow him. Now let's be clear. This does not mean that we are called to perfection. In fact, tomorrow morning in our worship time, we'll talk about what do, what do we do when we do, and we're trying to follow Jesus, but we sin. How do we deal with that? It's not a call to perfection, but it is a call to try. 
It's a call to say, you know what, I don't want to be this way. And so I'm walking one direction to repent means to stop, recognize my sin, and turn around and go the other way. It's a radical change. And here's my concern and why I'm kind of harping on it right now. I think it's really easy for us church people to go through the motions, the religious motions, the things that were expected, were taught all through our childhood, we need to become Christians, and so we're baptized, but I think it's tempting and it's possible to do that, but never really have a change of heart. And I think it's possible to go through all of the motions for years of showing up at church and doing a pretty good job of, of looking pretty good, but never changing our lives, never allowing the good news of Jesus to transform our hearts. And just like it's tempting to kind of ignore parts of the flight attendant that we've heard a thousand times, maybe it's really easy for us to, to get to this part of Acts and just kind of skip over the, yeah, repent and be baptized. That's what we get to. And forget that all of us are called to this. We're called to a change of heart that leads to a change of mind. Now, this isn't just stopping the bad. It's kind of how I always, it's like repentance means st stopping the bad. It's also starting the good. Go, go read Luke 3 sometime on, on your own time where John the Baptist's message is a strong message of repentance. And so the crowds say to him, you've called us to repent. What shall we do? And then he goes and he lists all of the positive things that they got to start doing. Like sharing what they have and stopping, to, stopping complaining and, and being satisfied with your wages. It's not just stopping the bad. It also involves starting the good. And so I want you to see this whole picture in this passage and be reminded that it's not just a call to baptism. It's a call to repentance. And all of us are called to this. But then Peter says, repent and be baptized. And maybe if this is a new passage and you've never studied this before, as we respond to God, what that looks like, we're called to repent and be baptized. And, and I want you to see just how simple this passage reads. It does not say, repent and accept Jesus into your heart, or repent and, and say this prayer. It just simply says, repent and be baptized. Now maybe it's true that that we come to this passage often, but this is not the only passage that points us to baptism. And so if you're following along, if you're in the auditorium or at home, I want you to see some of the other places that describe a response of baptism in the New Testament. Throughout Acts, when people come to faith in Jesus, they're baptized. But I want to point out just three or four. Skip to Acts 22. Acts 22, Paul is recounting his conversion story. And he recounts the words that Ananias said to him in verse 16. Ananias says to Paul, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. And what happens when you're, when you're baptized? And wash away your sins, calling on his name. At baptism, our sins are washed away. You want to talk about a sinner's prayer or an appeal to God? Baptism is that appeal. Because Paul... Paul recounts this and says, when I was told to be baptized, I was told that that's when I call on the name of the Lord. And so you may not like the, the language of this, but there's a sense in which baptism is the sinner's prayer. Baptism is the point at which I say that I appeal to God to forgive me of my sins. That's the point at which I'm asking God to forgive me of my sins. Skip over to Galatians chapter 3, just a few pages over. Galatians 3, and then I want to come back to Romans. I skipped Romans. Galatians 3, look at verse 
Verse 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to just quote these verses at you. Many of you could quote these verses, but I want you to see them for yourselves. The reason I can't just say, hey, you know what, when it comes to baptism, whatever, anything goes, is because the only times in the New Testament where it describes someone getting into Christ, it says that they are baptized into Christ. That's a pretty important piece of information to have, that the only way into Christ is to be baptized into him. Back up a couple pages in your New Testament to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Listen to this description of baptism. Verses 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There it is again. How do we get into Christ Jesus? It's through baptism. And that baptism is not just not just a rite, R-I-T-E, that we go through, or this, this simple thing we do. No, it is a meaningful ceremony that represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are participating in that at baptism. That's a big deal. Let me show you one more. Flip over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now what Peter's talking about in this passage is, is actually kind of complicated, to be honest. But he mentions in passing Noah and the ark, and how God saved Noah through the water. And then he says this in verse 21. Almost as a side note. Baptism, which corresponds to this, goes back to the story of Noah. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal, listen, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you ask God to forgive you? If you are not a follower of Jesus and you've decided, I want to become a follower of Jesus, do you just say, God, please forgive me, please come into my heart? No, this text says that baptism is that appeal or that asking God to save you. Baptism is the point at which God saves us, this text says. Now again, if you've never thought through this, we don't show you these passages to win an argument or to try to prove anybody right or prove anybody wrong. I just want people to see the simplicity of, of the scriptures and to know that you are absolutely saved by grace through faith, but that faith demands we respond to God in the way that he's asked us to. And to trust, that's what faith is. It's trusting God to give us what he's promised when we respond in the way he's asked us to. Now, I want you to hear this. It's important. Baptism is not just some hoop we jump through on the way to heaven. Sometimes we treat it that way. We just want to, there's this list of things we need people to do, and so let's just kind of get them to jump through the hoops. No, no, baptism is not, is not that, not that plain. It's beautiful. It is a meaningful gift from God. It's not just a hoop we jump through. Further, baptism is not the finish line. Sometimes we treat it that way, don't we? We want to see people get baptized. We can just get them baptized, get them baptized. no. Baptism is not the finish line. It is the starting point of a lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ. And it's not a commitment that should be taken lightly. We ought to be counting the cost and thinking about it really, really seriously. So again, 
I've, I don't know, I haven't said this yet, but I'm just trying to keep this simple, right? So my little pretty little chart here is kind of simple. I know that if you grew up in church, this is overly simplistic, but I just want you to see kind of on my, my little flow chart what this looks like. So God's part, and then our part, according to Acts chapter 2, is to repent and be baptized. When we were living in Peru, there was this couple named Ricardo and Lucy. Yes, Ricky and Lucy came to church um, one Sunday, and it happened to be the Sunday that we were starting a medical campaign. And so there were several American guests there with us, and we were on a, our church location was on a, the main street in town, so we got a lot of walk-through traffic, and, and people would just walk in, see us there, and they weren't afraid to walk into a church building. It's not like here you kind of have to know where you're coming and drive up down there. No, people were constantly walking by, and so they'd just come in if they, if they happened to see us. So Ricardo and Lucy came in, and because they were middle class people that they didn't need medical care, but eye care isn't great in, in Cusco, and we had some eye doctors there, so they came back for the medical campaign. At the medical campaign, we had, we, we brought people through, and we gave them the choice. We didn't force anything. We said, would you be interested in sitting down for 15 minutes while you're waiting and do a little Bible study? And we kept it real simple. We didn't want any rush decisions, but we just wanted to introduce them to who we are, and so Ricardo did that. And then, and then left, he got the eye care, and we set up a Bible study with him. But what we didn't know about Ricardo at the time is that he had a long history in, in evangelical churches. So most people grow up Catholic. He'd kind of grown up or been through a lot of different churches, and he had been baptized as an infant. But over time, and, and he had actually been like a missionary out in the jungle parts of Peru, and so over time, because of the bureaucracy and the hypocrisy, he, got, he just got fed up with it and quit church completely. But he knew his Bible, and he, and he kind of knew what was going on. So he came back for the Bible study the next week. And when he came in the door, we were ready to study the Bible with him. But he didn't want to study the Bible. He was ready to be baptized right then. Because here's what had happened. For, he had been baptized as an infant, he didn't feel good about that as an adult, but every church that he went to and was a part of over time, he would say, How, I was baptized as an infant, what do I need to do? And they would always say, don't worry about it, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Well, he had just been introduced in the literature that we gave him that day, and he had read Romans chapter 6 for the first time. We just read that, Romans 6, 3, and 4, represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, baptism does. And something clicked, and he realized I, somebody's not been giving me the whole story. And so he came that day, and he was ready to be baptized. And so we baptized him, and we continued to study the Bible with him, and he was a help to us at the time. So he was baptized, and his wife, Lucy, was standing outside the baptistry, and she had her camera out. And he came up out of the water, and, and she said, Ricardo, do you have anything to say? And, and here's what he said. I, I wrote it down because I wanted to get it right. And, and we have it on video. He said in Spanish, thanks be to God, because after all these years, I've finally done what I needed to do. Not the way I believed it, but the way the Bible teaches it. That's our, that's our plea. Our plea is not to, to say, hey, we want, we want to show that you're wrong and we're right. or We're not trying to prove it. We just want people to, to respond to the good news of Jesus the way folks in the, in the Bible do. Not because we want to be right, because we want to see people be right with God. That's why. That's why this matters. And so our part is repent and be baptized. But watch, watch the rest of the story because it comes back to God's part now. 
Look at the rest of verse, verse 38. Don't miss this. And he, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And here's what you receive. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At baptism, we receive forgiveness. Last night, our word was loved. You are deeply loved by your Father. Tonight, I want you to hear that, that you can be forgiven by God. He loves you and will forgive you. He's done his part. He just asks you to respond in repentance and baptism. And you can be forgiven. And we'll add to these words tomorrow in our three discussions tomorrow. Isn't it, isn't it great to be forgiven? If you've ever been forgiven by someone else, isn't that so freeing? To be forgiven of all of our past sins by God is so, so freeing. But I don't want us to stop there. I don't want us to get, I think sometimes we, we read this passage and we say, hey, do you want forgiveness? Do you want forgiveness? That's not the only promise of this passage. This passage also says that if we are baptized, we receive forgiveness from God and the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, here's what Paul says about the Holy Spirit to people who had put Christ on in baptism. He says, or do you not know, he's trying to convince them to live holy lives, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us at baptism. And he doesn't just live there to do nothing. We could have a long discussion about what the Holy Spirit does today for us. But for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, just listen to one thing that the Holy Spirit does for God's people. Verse 16, Paul is praying for, for the folks at Ephesus, and he says in his prayer that according to the riches of his glory, listen, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Now, does Paul know how to say that the Word of God does something? Yeah, and he does that sometimes. But here he says the Holy Spirit strengthens us in our inner being. You ever need inner strength? I know I do. Have you ever said about someone going through a tough time, wow, look how strong they are? Could it be that we're ignoring the promise of Scripture that it's the Holy Spirit living inside of us that gives us that inner strength? And here's the deal. I recognize that some folks are like, well, I don't know because I don't really understand how that works. You don't have to understand how something works to enjoy its benefits. You ever fly on a plane before? Do you know how that works? I do not know how they get that big old thing in the up, up in the air and it stays there. But I, I enjoy the benefits of it. I'm not very good with mechanical things. But you better believe I'm going to take advantage of the blessings of having a vehicle. I don't know how it happens that I flip on a light switch and elect somehow electricity flows through the walls and all of a sudden we've got all this. I don't understand how that works, but I take advantage of it. Listen, I don't understand how a black cow makes white milk that they then turn into yellow butter. But give me a biscuit and I sure want some of that yellow butter. I don't really care how it gets there. I don't have to understand it to take advantage of it. Listen, you don't have to understand the, in fact, you can't understand the science of how the Holy Spirit works because it's a spiritual reality. It's not, a, it's not something that can be explained by scientists. You don't have to understand it to trust what the Bible says about it. And what incredible blessings we have if we'll just take advantage of them. So here's how I want, how I want to close. I want all of us to look at the screen and I can look at the screen back there, but I want you to look at this screen and ask yourself this. 
Again, this is maybe kind of childish to you to put up a chart like this, but I want you to ask yourself, which part of this, this plan of salvation have you neglected? Where are the deficiencies in your life when you look at this? Maybe for some of you who've been in church a long time, maybe you've found yourself neglecting God's part and depending just a little bit too much on your own goodness and your own good works as if God somehow owes you something. We can never earn it. Never in a million years could we earn the love of God and what he does for us. Maybe that's the part that you need to be reminded of tonight. You need to be renewed in your zeal for the simplicity of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you have neglected repentance. And this is a hard message. Our culture doesn't want to hear about repentance because it sounds judgmental. But the reality is, if you've gone through the motions of Christianity without ever having a change of heart that leads to a transformed life, then, then perhaps you rushed to get into the water but never, never repented. If that's you, I would challenge you to think seriously about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's not just to go back in there and get dunked in some water. There's a change of heart and a change of life. Or maybe tonight there's, there's somebody listening that's, that's never been baptized. Maybe that's the part that you've neglected. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you've never read these scriptures. Go back and read them again. And if you have a question about baptism, then call, call the church. Contact the church if you're watching online. And, and there'll be somebody who'll be glad to talk with you about that and answer your questions and, and wrestle it with you. We don't have all the answers. But we can look to the Word of God together to find the answers as we study together. Maybe... You went through this process, and you believed the gospel, and you were baptized, and you repented. But you are still living in guilt. And you're still living under the burden of sin. Listen, Jesus didn't die for you to live in guilt and under the burden of sin. If you've put Christ on in baptism, you can be confident in the salvation that he's given you. And then maybe, maybe you've neglected the Holy Spirit. And I recognize that we haven't always talked about the Holy Spirit as we should have. And, and maybe we just, nobody's really ever talked about it. Maybe that's the part of this that you've neglected. So just from your own perspective, look at the screen. What's, what have you neglected? What are the deficiencies in your life? Because all of us have blind spots. All of us have things that we focus on more than others. I do. And I want to I be a healthy, growing, mature Christian. And that means analyzing my life in light the good news of Jesus. When I was a senior at Freed Hardeman University, I lived in, in Brigance Dorm. Some of you um, know the, the geography of the lay of the land. Um, Brigance is no longer there. They tore it down. It was a pretty cool dorm because you, you had your doors open to the outside. It wasn't like a typical dorm. And we had a, a dorm mom. That's the, the dorm supervisor. We called him a dorm mom. And we had a dorm mom named Mama Jean. Now, Mama Jean, she's still alive, and she seemed ancient when I was in school 20 years ago. So I don't know how old she was then, I don't know how old she is now, but for a bunch of college guys, she, she seemed really old. And she was this really sweet lady, but she was a bit quirky. That's, that's a kind, she was a, she was a quirky lady. For example, in dorm musters, dorm meetings, she would dress up in a really nice, I mean, it's a bunch of college guys at midnight, you can imagine what we had on. She would put a dress on 
and then read, read a poetry to us, as if that's what we really wanted to be doing in that, that moment. Um, but a sweet lady, so there was a point in time in which I was doing my laundry. Like everybody, you learn to do laundry when you go to college, I've never done laundry in my life, and only did laundry as often as I had to do laundry. And so I got to a point where apparently I was out of, out of clothes, so I went to do laundry, and I preached some, a little country church, little tiny country church, and, and back, in, back then I wore suits, and I remember I had this white dress shirt, and you know what happens to white dress shirts when you wear them under, under a suit over time? It's kind of, the, the armpits turn yellow, right? It's just how it works. Now, I would assume my mom knew how to clean that up, but I didn't. And so at one, some point, the armpits got yellow enough in this shirt that I did what any responsible college student would do when I went to do the laundry. I just tossed it over in the corner of the laundry room and then left. A couple weeks later, or whenever I needed laundry done again, I went back to the laundry room. And in the corner of the laundry room was hanging a white dress shirt. I thought, that's weird, and there, and there was a note hanging on it. And so I walked over to the, the, the shirt, and it was my, my shirt, and it had this note. And I, I actually intended to bring the note and totally forgot, so my wife had to send me a picture of it. It's on Friedhardt of Letterhead, and here's what it said. And I can show you if you don't believe me. Here's the note from Mama Jean. Found one Stafford size, none of your business, white, white dress shirt with stains. Took shirt treated stains with stain remover, and she put little numbers, little steps, so that I could do it on my own later, and rewashed into hot water. Would former owner reclaim this nice shirt? Thanks, Mama Jean. And then at the bottom, she put note. Does this remind you of what the Lord does for us? As cheesy as Mama Jean could be sometimes, she was absolutely right. Because that's exactly the Lord does for us. He takes us when we're dirty and sin-stained. And when we respond to his call and his love that he's demonstrated through Jesus Christ and repent and are baptized, he washes us clean. And if you need to respond to that invitation and that incredible message of love today and be washed clean just like my old shirt was, we'd love to help you while we stand and sing together. Oh, do not let the word the line. Poor sinner, harden not thy heart. Be saved, oh, tonight. Oh, why not tonight? Oh, why not tonight? Will thou be saved? Then why sun may never rise to bless thy long deluded sight this is the time oh then be wise be saved oh tonight oh why not tonight oh why not tonight will Refuses none who would to him their souls unite.
why not tonight? Oh, why not tonight? Will thou be saved? 